Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through that illusion of separation. And I trust something you hear in this next hour will open you to the infinite power and potential in your own awareness, your own self-witnessing truth. What does it mean? Well, what does it mean to be born into this human form with an ever-changing body and mind? subjected to forces seemingly out of our control? And how can we possibly feel at home in our lives amidst the inevitable torrent of change? Good questions, huh? Our guest has explored many profound questions such as these and shares a simple wisdom that opens us to a new way of being. She uses the Buddha's teachings as the compass when seeking direction and says we are all capable of developing the consciousness necessary to ask these questions and to know the answers for ourselves through the power of our own awareness. To have a personal and intimate sense of the truth is as much our birthright as our potential. We are going to have a delightful time of exploration today. It's an honor to be joined by one of the world's foremost meditation teachers and spiritual authors. She was recently named one of the 100 spiritual influencers for 2016 by Mind Body Spirit Magazine. So I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest. Sharon Salzberg is a meditation teacher and New York Times bestselling author. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts, and has played a crucial role in bringing Asian meditation practices to the West. Sharon has been a student of meditation since 1971, guiding retreats worldwide since 74. She's a weekly columnist for one of my favorites, On Being, a regular contributor to Huffington Post, and the author of many, many, many books, including Real Happiness and Loving Kindness. Welcome, Sharon. It is a true honor and delight to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Mm, thank you. You know, when I was preparing for this show, I, number one, just was really thinking of you as a really important voice in these turbulent times. There's so much going on in the world today, globally, and of course in the West, there's just so much going on. And and I thought, wow, this voice I know can really benefit a larger audience here. So I'm, I'm so glad to invite you. And there's so much we could talk about. You are an expert in mindfulness, loving kindness, and you've written on real happiness. And all of this rolls into a beautiful tapestry for our conversation today. But I want to start with our traditional question, Sharon, because um, it sets our conversation in a larger construct here. So can you share with our listeners, what is all things connected? mean to you? <laughs> uh, I think it's the truth of, of life. I think that, um, you know, we live in a time that's very interesting because it, 
it doesn't even take a particularly spiritual perspective to know that. I think uh, economics shows us this, and environmental consciousness shows us this, science shows us this. Uh, so much reveals the truth that everything's connected. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. I can't <laughs> agree more. And I love how it's becoming easier to say that because it isn't just about spirituality anymore. We're seeing it everywhere. So, so thank you for that. Sharon, you yourself are such an inspiration, not only your career and all the achievements and the incredible books, and, and I love every one of them. Thank you. You've been a mentor of mine. But your story is inspiring. Let's begin with you because um, your story can help us look and put this whole conversation into a context of it begins with that suffering from an early age, which really informed your whole career. Well, can you tell us a little bit about you and how you got here? Sure. I mean, I, ha I did have a very uh, difficult, traumatic childhood. And um, my mother died when I was nine, for example. Um, all kinds of things happened. And when I wrote a book called Faith, was, which is really about my faith journey, I looked back over my life and I realized that by the time I went to college at the age of 16, I had lived in... Uh, five different family configurations, and each of which had been ended by trauma or loss of some really intense kind. And so uh, I, was, I was incredibly fragmented and unhappy, and I went to college. And in my sophomore year, I took an Asian philosophy course. And honestly, looking back, I think it was almost kind of happenstance, like there was a philosophy requirement. I needed to do a philosophy course. And I looked at the schedule and I thought, oh, that looks convenient. You know, let me do that one. And because the course completely changed my life. And there were two things in there that were particularly prominent. One was uh, in the Buddhist teaching, the Buddha's very unafraid, open acknowledgement of the suffering in life. Like for many people, not only had I gone through a lot, but mine was a family system where this was never, ever spoken about. And so... I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And here was the Buddha saying, you're not weird, you're not aberrant, it's not just you. You don't have to feel isolated and alone. This is a part of life, and <clears throat> you, you can use this. And then I heard in the Course that there were actual practical tools called meditation that anyone could use, and if you, if you practice them, you could have a different kind of life. You could be a lot happier, you could be more integrated, feel more whole, no more love and compassion. So I looked around, this was 1970, and I looked around uh, the city where I was going to college. I didn't see any meditation schools or anything. So um, the university had an independent study program where if you created a project they liked, you could go anywhere in the world for a year and do that, fulfill the project. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. So they accepted it, and off I went. Hmm. Wow. That is, it amazes me that you were only 16 as well going off to college. What an accomplishment in today's measurements. So that is, that is mm -hmm. quite incredible. And you really did transform and transmute. You learned so much on your journey that, that assisted in the transformation of, of your own um, sense of self in the world. 
Tell us a little bit more about that. Tell, give us that foundational piece about meditation and how that does that. Well, you know, I, I wandered around India um, a little bit because I wasn't particularly interested in a belief system or, or a new identity. I didn't want to reject anything else. I really wanted to know what those practical, direct tools might be, and I finally found uh, the kind of situation I was looking for, which was uh, really an immersion course in meditation, which wasn't really dealing so much with the philosophical context, but but with the actual how-to. And what I discovered was that, um, first of all, one could see meditation as a kind of skills training, and it was a skills training to begin with in concentration. So when I said I was very fragmented, I think that was manifest both moment to moment and in a larger sense of who I, who I thought I was. And you know, I was scattered, I was distracted, I was all over the place, I was uncentered, I was ungrounded, and most of us are, actually. And the process of becoming more concentrated, more present, more whole, more integrated in doing the practice was really important. And meditation is also a skills training and mindfulness, and which, of course, is a word that's very popular these days and can mean many things. But uh, it basically means... Uh, in that classical sense, a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment isn't so distorted by bias. So, for example, something painful may be arising in your body and your conditioning might be to start speculating what's it going to feel like in 10 weeks, what's it going to feel like in a year. Um, you know, so we add a very uncomfortable future of anticipation to what's actually happening and it's so much worse. So, I, I saw so much of what my inner world was really like and the things I was feeling and, and the things I was thinking and was able to really let go of a lot of just deeply conditioned patterns. And, and I also found that meditation is a training in compassion, starting with self-compassion because, um, you know, as an example, my very first meditation instruction was sit down and feel your breath. And first of all, I was very disappointed, and I thought, feel my breath. I came all the way to India. There was the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to change my whole life. And then I thought, eh, how hard can this be? Hmm. You know, what will it be, like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander? And to my astonishment, it was like one breath, or maybe two breaths, and I would just be gone. And I came to learn that so much of the transformation in the process was in letting go of distraction and beginning again in kindness to yourself instead of in judgment. And letting go and beginning again and letting go and beginning again. Um, that was really the key to the, the most profound change. And, and so there's a kind of self-compassion that's, that's building uh, every time we have to do that. And, and that's a big part of the training. Mm. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up self compassion again in a little bit because I think it's so important, and and again that becomes a really powerful prescription for us. But I want to go back to your um, definition of mindfulness as a quality of awareness, and I just tie this in and pause here for a second because um, you're right. Lots of people are using mindfulness in a lot of different ways and also even just meditation you know there's a 101 different ways to meditate and just like our intro when we were talking about that that we don't have to go just to 
spirituality and religion to see that interconnectedness it's it's showing up in all the domains so is mindfulness and meditation now it's Mm -hmm. it's you know it's it's deep into science we're seeing it in schools and in hospitals and in community groups and in formal faith organizations so it's like it's it's a really important piece for us and so here's where i want to pause and thank you for that definition of mindfulness is the quality of awareness you also say so i'm going to link this back to the suffering that as we acknowledge our pain it's not that we acknowledge our pain to get more depressed or to drown in our suffering but it's really to see the truth of our experience and then we kind of transcend that so i just wanted to you have so many brilliant quotes. You are like my favorite person on the planet to, to quote. I love your quotes. But I really want to bring that in for our listeners because if they haven't had a meditation practice yet and they don't know what mindfulness is, but they're learning, well, I have to chop wood and carry water. And so I'm going to clean my vegetables today and be really present and mindful. If, they're, if they haven't had a formal meditation practice, Sharon, what would you say to inspire them that this is one path that is not just about religion or spirituality or it's, it really is a, a beautiful path to integrate into our lives on so many levels? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's uh, really necessarily at all about, re- it's certainly not about religion and I don't mm-hmm. think it necessarily has to be seen as even particularly spiritual. It's it's the capacity of the human mind and heart to grow and to change and to see clearly and to love. And um, if you believe there is that capacity, however covered over it might be or, or hidden from view, um, then there are so many ways we try to kind of wake that capacity up and reinforce it and bring it to life. And, you know, I, my particular path took me to meditation and, um, I really like the idea of meditation because I think it makes those other applications much easier. You know, you don't have to meditate for sure, uh, but I find that it's one way to kind of remember. You know, if you're in the middle of a busy day and the momentum is crazy and the pressure is high and remembering to take a breath is not that, e- not that easy, really. Taking the breath is, is easy, but... Remembering to do that is not that easy. And so in one way or another, I think we need uh, little periods of training. We need, um, sometimes we need to ritualize it. You know, this is the place where people say things like, don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe and then pick it up. Just whatever we can do to create reminders for us will really help us in some funny way. You know, it, it sounds... Um, very pragmatic and maybe a little dry, but I was uh, studying with some very venerated old Tibetan Lama, high in the Himalayas, and his advice for a mindful life was short moments many times. You know, don't try to think about being mindful all day at work or at home, but short moments many times. Like, intersperse those moments. It will make a big, big difference in your life. And then, you know, I think it's a very personal thing to see what will help me remember? Mm, that's really good advice. It's really an integration of these practices in our daily life. You know, we know science is showing that the daily meditation practice improves our, our resiliency, our creativity, uh, our 
finding an inner peace gives us clarity. There's so many health benefits. And, and now science is showing that integrating small moments, just like you prescribed a, a moment ago, really has a lot of the same benefits. And I'm not saying don't sit down and meditate for 30 minutes twice a day, because I'm not saying that. But, but that advice to just remember to breathe and come into the present moments is really a health benefit as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, in some ways, the um, you know, let's say 10 minutes a day, if you choose that, that route that you formally meditate, it's like, you know, muscle training or something. It's strength training uh, so that in these more pressured, confusing environments, um, it's there for you as a resource. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, you know, and, and a meditation practice is powerful if you want to sit. So what would be, you before we go on to um, talking about some of the other beautiful gifts that you bring in your writing, I think this meditation piece is really important of understanding this quality of awareness in our consciousness and really learning this non-attachment. So um, thoughts come up, emotions come up from thoughts, and all of a sudden we can be into the past and into the future. And and it really is a learning of this non-attachment. What can you teach us about that non-attachment place? Well, I think it's really a place of balance. I think the, you know, the wording can be tricky for us. It can it can sound like not caring place, you know, or um, not being connected place, and it's really the opposite. Uh, we use the word attachment almost specifically to mean kind of control. It's an effort to control, to hold on to that which we like, to push away that which we don't like, not in a useful way or a, a skillful way, but it's kind of useless. And so... Um, and it's very draining, you know, to always be, like, trying to cling and push away in, in ways that don't work because the truth is that everything is changing. This thought, this emotion, this experience, it's all constantly arising and passing away and arising and passing away. And But we act, you know, a certain emotion, say, will come up and maybe we take it to heart and we build our whole self-image around us, around it, and, you know, this is all I ever feel and I'm the only one and... Um, you know, we end up feeling very cut off and alone and uh, overly identified and defined by this emotion, or we don't like it and we're ashamed of it and we don't think we should have it. And we get into, you know, I've been meditating all these years. Why is it still here? And I'm so bad. And, and you know, that doesn't help either. And so not falling into either of these extreme reactions, but finding the place in the middle is really, that's where mindfulness dwells, where we're connected to what's happening, we see it clearly, we're neither lost in it, nor are we hating it and hating ourselves for it. And, and so it's a very spacious awareness, and in that space, many things arise. So one of the things that arise, arises is creativity or a sense of options. You know, maybe when we were fighting all the time, for example, we couldn't see our way out. But when we're simply with it in a different way, uh, sometimes many options arise for resolution or taking action in some way. So it's not that you remain passive and you never do anything, but it's coming from a different place. Mm. 
Thank you. Thanks for differentiating that. I think that non-attachment, and I just want to put an exclamation point on that, that it doesn't mean that we don't care. It's like, of course, we care deeply about what might be unfolding in our lives right now. But um, like you mentioned, that that middle ground of not clinging to or resisting too much. Thank you for for really clarifying that. You know, when we're talking about this non-attachment piece, Sharon, before we go to break, and I I can't wait to get into the the talk about compassion and, and happiness and loving kindness, but this meditation piece is important. So things are coming up in the world. Large whole systems are breaking down. The economy looks scary sometimes. The general political terrain looks interesting, if not anxiety-provoking. And here we are. Of course, we care about outcomes. Um, what would you say to our listeners today? Um, maybe some some just simple practices with this breathing, but what would you say about this whole topic of anxiety and fear that comes up and how we can create greater inner peace? Well, I think it's, it's so interesting to actually just sit in a space of anxiety or fear and take a look at it. So I've, you know, done that through the years and I feel like I've learned a lot about the nature of my fear, which has been important learning. And so, for example, one of the things I've seen is that despite the kind of common uh, maxim that we're afraid of the unknown, I mean, of course I am afraid of the unknown, but mostly I am afraid, I find, when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's the story that I tell myself about how terrible it's going to be and there's no way out. That's when I really get terrified. And even in the midst of that, if I remind myself, you know what, you don't know, then I feel relief. Then I feel space. It's like, wow, I don't know. You know, so that was an important, important lesson for me because uh, obviously the fear arises not just when I'm sitting on a meditation cushion paying attention, but I I could remember that. Like, oh, what are the stories you're telling yourself right now? Um, And so I think we learn a lot about our own patterns to paying attention, and then we can use that kind of learning wherever we are, whatever's coming up. Yeah, the stories we tell ourselves, and so the stories the media tells us as well. I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the political terrain right now and, and how we take things to the worst possible outcome in our minds, and we're creating stories that aren't even... Um, in existence, right? They, they, they may or may not. So I love that idea about an expansiveness. So Sharon, I just want to also just mention here that the practice is important and that practice is like a cruel. It's like, it's like the more we sit on that cushion, the more we even take those small mindful breaths in those moments, the more that that sustains and supports us in those other moments where we get caught in the story or the anxiety. Is that Mm -hmm. true? Can you help us with that? I think that's really true because, um, you know, I mean, the goal is is not just to feel a little bit more comfortable, but if we actually want to actively engage in this world and trying to make it a better world, then uh, we can't feel just constantly devastated. You know, it's just not going to work. Um, we need some energy. We need to feel good about taking even one small step in whatever direction we think or, you know, is, is helpful. And 
the only way we can do that is from some sense of inner resource. And um, I just find that, uh, you know, it's like the, the, old, the what's now a very common saying, you know, when people are always pointing out, like when you're on the airplane and they do the safety announcements and they say, if an oxygen mask drops, put your own on first before you try to help anybody else. Um, you know, it's just like really true. <laughs> and there's some amount of inner peace we need or, or sense of resource or wholeness uh, before we can actually try to make a difference. Mm. Yes, thank you for that. Thank you, thank you. I We need to take a quick break, and I just want to make sure our listeners know how to find you before. And when we come back, we're going to take so much more about that self-compassion, what is loving-kindness or a loving-kindness practice, and your book, Real Happiness. What is what is happiness? So, Sharon, our listeners can find you at SharonSaltzberg.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so that's Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N, Salzburg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G.com. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, more with Sharon Salzburg. We'll be right back. Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cat stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Do you get tired of styling your hair every day? And do you want a good hairstyle every day? Hi, I'm Sarah Schuster. I went on a website called inventnow.org. And after that, I decided to invent something too. Something called the Insta-Do. Just imagine, you just put it over your head like a helmet does, and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side. And you can have instant hairstyle in seconds. People like it. People like Jeff Bart. I like it. And people like Kenneth. It's a summer thing, and it fits over your head, and it's great. Thank you, for- Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org, and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions, or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Sassy! This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? 
You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl! <laughs> what? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold! <laughs> people shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? <laughs> because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? <laughs> what? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. If you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and listen to it again if you'd like. Please visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. And also stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. Both Sharon and I would love to hear from you, so stop on by and leave us a message. And I want to make you aware Sharon also has a lovely Facebook page yourself under Sharon Salzberg. So look her up and connect there as well. Sharon, um, we talked a lot about the, the suffering and non-attachment and the meditation piece. And I, I love that you dropped in that self-compassion piece because really, even in in modern psychology and health right now, we're really learning a lot of what does it really mean to love ourselves and to have a deep sense of compassion. And, you know, we've, we've been raised that you're not supposed to put yourself in the center of things and we get mixed messages all the time. But this compassion piece seems so extremely important in our world today. You had a quote. I just, I, like I said, I like to quote you more than almost anybody on the planet. And it's, you said, sometimes people don't trust the force of kindness, they think love or compassion or kindness will make you weak and kind of stupid and people will take advantage of you. You won't stand up for other people. And so obviously this this is a myth and you spent a lot of time writing and teaching on this kindness and compassion, but also the practice of loving kindness. How you want to introduce that to our guests and the whole role of this self-compassion piece so important mm -hmm. well self-compassion is also a, a term that's being used a lot these days in in western psychology and um it's really referring to what is believed to be a more effective more efficient way of making a change in one's life or making progress in something we know we tend to believe that if we really punish ourselves and get down on ourselves and feel ashamed and feel upset about what we've done, that that's going to be very onward leading. And hmm. really, it's usually exhausting and, and debilitating uh, that a much better way to actually learn or, or make progress is through this force of self-compassion, which doesn't mean being lazy and doesn't mean you're, you're not striving to you know, be really good at something. Uh, but instead of just getting lost in that spiral of self-judgment, you remember everybody makes mistakes. Um, this is a part of the human condition. Is there something I can learn from this and then move on? You know, so it's, it's, a, it's like resilience. It's really resilience training um, to train in self-compassion. And so uh, one of the big problems is that we do confuse it with laziness. And we think, oh, you know, you're just like 
And people have said that to me, you know, I don't know about that. You know, it's like, oh, I make a mistake. I'll just forgive myself. So what? I'll, you know, make another mistake in 10 seconds. Who cares? I'll just forgive myself for that one too, you know. <laughs> but it's really not like that. Um, it's an extraordinary sense of connection to life as a whole and an ability to to really bounce back and move on. And, you know, what I say these days, uh, at this stage of my life is I really think nothing in life is a straight shot. You know, we go forward, we fall down, we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up. We go forward again or we have like a really big aspiration and we forget it. We have to be reminded and, or we need to remember ourselves and uh, we make a mistake. We have to, you know, learn and move on. And Otherwise, we're just stuck and we're just constantly putting ourselves down and it's not that helpful. So self-compassion is actually like a, it's like a superpower. Um, it, it really helps us change and grow and learn and be more effective and, and uh, you know, get really better at something. And, and it extrapolates, you know, the more compassionate we, we are toward ourselves, the more compassionate we can be toward others, and, uh, which doesn't mean giving in. It doesn't mean being weak and sentimental, it, it really means having some understanding of how our lives are, are really connected. And that's kind of the basic meaning of loving kindness, which is an uh, ally of compassion. Um, loving kindness means a quality of connection. It's a recognition that our lives have something to do with one another. It doesn't mean that you like somebody, but it's, it's a remembering that everybody wants to be happy um, that's the nature of things. We have a very uh, skewed idea, usually, of where happiness is to be found. And so it's the force of ignorance that really leads us astray. But we all basically want a sense of belonging. We want a sense of having a home somewhere in his body, in his mind, in his life. And um, we can recognize that in one another, and that's loving kindness. And when we sort of expand that and realize not only do we all want to be happy, but we're all pretty vulnerable. It's not that people have the same measure of pain in life, because clearly we don't, but we're all so vulnerable. Like, life can change on a dime, and life's very insecure and unstable, and that understanding should have us want to help one another and be there for one another. And uh, it, You know, it, it's a really important understanding, and that's the birth of great compassion. Mm. Thank you, Sharon. I so this brings up, I think, an important question to differentiate. We talk about compassion, self-compassion, and loving kindness being allies. But what is the interrelationship of that? Do I need to develop self-compassion before I can have real, true, authentic compassion for others, or is it? Do I need to develop authentic compassion for others to develop authentic self-connection? Is there any relationship? I think there's a strong relationship, and it's usually reciprocal, but um, I, I don't really believe you need to have perfect love for yourself, you know. Like, people say that all the time, well, you can't really love someone else yeah. who loves yourself, and um, I know what they mean, but I, I, don't, I would probably phrase it differently, because there are a lot of people who love other people and not themselves, um, but I think in the end, we wear down, or... Uh, generosity becomes martyrdom, you know, where we're coming from a very different, often, you know, increasingly weird place in our 
efforts to help someone else be happy. And um, there needs to be something inside out of which our caring for others is coming. And otherwise, it is like not putting your own oxygen mask on first. So, you know, I hesitate to have people think um, we have to love yourself completely, you know, before you can love someone else. Uh, Because it's way too much. But, um, you know, we we do work it both ways. We develop more self-compassion and watch that expand. We practice compassion for others, and then we learn how to bring it in. Uh, You know, they're both important. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for clarifying that, because I think it is important. And I think another element of that that modern psychology uses today is really to have self-compassion for that small child within that inner child and and a lot of times people can relate to that like oh Julie it's okay you know you made a mistake no big deal we'll get up and do it again you know I think that we have this ability to relate to a small child so we can develop self-compassion that way but that does lead to developing that in the present moment as well we do hear you you know, to love someone completely, you have to, da, 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 you know, and it's, it, it is confusing for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very confusing for people. And, um, you know, I don't think it, it should be, I don't think it's helpful to see it as a project, you know, and it, it's not in the realm of pass fail. That's not what it's about, but it, it's understanding that, um, uh, in some ways it's understanding that we've been taught a lot of things. And we need to question those things in order to have a much more abiding sense of happiness. So maybe we've been taught that um, self-condemnation is really a kind of strength. And revenge is a kind of strength. Anger is a kind of strength. Maybe we've been taught that love and compassion are pretty weak and, and sentimental and foolish. And that's how you end up being a doormat. And, you know, But when we really take a look at those qualities as as a lived experience, it's not like that. And that frees us to to be willing to be different. Mm, thank you. That's a that's a really helpful way for us to just sit and rest in that. Thank you. So loving kindness and, and then we'll go into a few other things that I, I think are really helpful for our listeners to hear today. But Loving kindness is not just a term that we use. There, there is a specific meta meditation that that people can learn. There's lots of ways to really practice loving kindness. What would you recommend to our listeners if they want to really develop this and practice loving kindness? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I teach the loving kindness meditation quite a lot, and uh, that's what meta m e t t a is a Pali word, the language of the original Buddhist text that is usually translated as loving-kindness, and um, and I think it's a fantastic way to really explore that domain. And basically, in that meditation, rather than resting your attention on the feeling of the breath, you rest your attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases, which are really like offerings. They're gift-giving that you're, you're offering to yourself and to others. So it's phrases like, may I be happy, be peaceful, and then may you be happy, be peaceful, as you call particular individuals to mind, you know, someone who's helped you or a friend or your dry cleaner, whoever it is, you know, lots of different categories. And then finally, all beings everywhere, all of life. And, um, you know, it's a particular method of practice. And I find it very powerful. 
Yes, it is. I'm going to attest to that. It's one of my very favorites as well to practice and to teach. And, and it's so easy because we can easily follow through with those instructions and, and call people into our awareness. And it, it's really a beautiful gift to give to yourself and the planet. Okay, so I want to make sure we go here with the time that we have left because you are brilliant in talking about all of these pieces in our human development and our our social potential here as well. So you wrote a book and you talk about real happiness. And I think it's important. I would love to hear you define that for our listeners. What is happiness? Well, that is a very interesting question. I felt like when when that book came out um, and I was touring with it, I got into some trouble because of that title. Uh, Hmm. Because a lot of people were saying, you know, they were thinking of happiness in a very conventional way, which is, for us, it's like the endless seeking of pleasure or being conflict avoidant or refusing to admit the existence of pain or suffering. And and I certainly didn't mean any of that. In my mind, it's much more like that sense of inner resource I'm talking about. You know, like sometimes a really wonderful fantastic thing happens for us, but we feel so kind of empty inside or like we have nothing happening inside that we cling to it. We think, finally, you know, this is going to make me happy, but everything changes. And so then it moves, it, you know, it passes, it starts to pass and we're freaked out. And so, uh, or, and, or, you know, we face adversity and we face challenge and, and there's difficulty. We don't feel like there's anything within us that can really either help join us to others in this or um, see a different or bigger perspective, you know. And so uh, we're really terribly overwhelmed. And so life happens, you know, there's pleasure and pain and good things and terrible things sometimes and lots of stuff in between. But how we meet it is, is really the question. And so I would talk about happiness as more that uh, wherewithal inside to meet everything. Hmm. I I really appreciate that. I I get a sense of when you say that, I'm just feeling like I'm settling into an inner space of peace. And that that non-attachment brings me into that spaciousness, right? That, you know, so it's how we approach all of these things happening outside that is true happiness is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Lovely. So let's bring this into the conversation then to Sharon, because I think it's helpful. We hear a lot, not only about mindfulness in this present day, but but we're hearing present moment awareness, presence, present scene, the flowing presence. So how do you define that from, from the Buddhist perspective and your teachings? How do you define present moment and presence? Well, I think it, it's a lot about, you know, seeing what your experience actually is as distinct from what we might call the add-ons, you know, so it doesn't sort of matter the the slice, you know, like whether it's uh, infinitesimal or it's like a bigger chunk, but um, we have this habit of adding on a lot of things, mm. uh, projection into the future, Um all kinds of things, you know, uh, interpretations, 
associations, judgments, and all of those take us away from a, a genuine, intimate experience of what's actually happening. So it's like if what's happening is uncomfortable, if it's painful, then uh, it's like we can get into pain plus, you know? It's not yes. just the original pain, but it's everything we're adding to it. Um, things like that. And so the more we can see those add-ons as they're arising, the more we can, if we want, let go of them. And the um, experience is much richer of what's actually happening right now. Yeah, thank you. So again, with all this stuff going on in the world and we get anxious and, and things happen that aren't always what we would choose, there's always coming back to this present moment and and really moving in, living into that richness of the moment. That's what I kind of hear you saying. Mm-hmm. Again, takes us back to that quality of awareness. Okay, so big picture then. Let's move back out, Sharon, in the time that we have left because you also talk about a fully integrated human and we're really being called today on the planet, 2016, it's time for us to really not just practice these things that we're talking about here today, but really to move into a place of action with our life. And I'm not talking about this activism, we got to rush out, but really to live into this place with this compassion, with this love, with loving kindness, to really move us forward in our daily lives, in our workplace, in our relationships and human. And so I think it's really important for us all to really hear that message. But you also have talked about the term a fully integrated human. And there are places where we have the fragmented self and we look at our separation and our connection to all things. So what, what can you teach us about that fully integrated human and why is it important for us to really integrate a lot of what we're learning here and move forward with it? Yeah, many years ago we um, brought over to the States one of our teachers from India and this was really a long time ago and uh, probably more than 40 years ago and we did a tour of the States and there were just these beginning uh, meditation communities arising, more and more people becoming interested in meditation. And uh, at one point we we said to him, this teacher, we said, isn't it fantastic? Look at this number of people who are getting interested in meditation. And, and he said, it is fantastic. There's just one thing. And we said, what's that? And he said, sometimes I feel like people here are like people in a rowboat that are rowing and rowing and rowing very earnestly with great dedication, but they refuse to untie the boat from the dock. Mm. And he said, you know, what I find here is that people sometimes want to practice mostly for like altered states of consciousness or great transcendent experiences, but they don't really want to pay attention to how they speak to their neighbor or how they are with their family or at work. And, uh, you know, from a certain perspective, our our deepest spiritual values and our most authentic self needs to be manifest everywhere we are because it's it's a seamless life, you know? It's not parceled out, actually, in reality. Um, And so we need to pay attention to how we speak to our neighbor and we need to pay attention to what happens in our hearts when we see that homeless person 
on the street. Whether or not you give them money is another question, but do you recognize that's a human being? And, um, you know, how are you with yourself when you've made a mistake? Or how are you meeting a stranger? And all of that really figures in our uh, view of what our practice is. It's really very big picture. Yeah. I thank you for that. I love the boat analogy. It's time for us to kind of untie that rope and and really see where that water wants to take us here. You know, thank you for that. And I, just listening to you now, I'm just sitting in this contentment of some of the, the pieces that you've pulled through these threads today really have addressed those first questions that we brought in the intro, which are really big, huge questions. So I think if the listeners go back, they'll go, ah, yeah, there's there's so much wisdom here. So thank you for that. I want to bring up that you are going to be celebrating a very special anniversary and give you a moment to, to share with our listeners about the Insight Meditation Society. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you know, we, um, uh, we opened the center uh, in actually in February 1976, on Valentine's Day, we moved in to what is the Insight Meditation Society. But it's very hard to have a party in February in Massachusetts, so we're <laughs> celebrating in July, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and yes, I was 23 years old, and my colleagues Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield were maybe 30, and uh, we, you know, just uh, had this kind of audacity, you know, it's remarkable looking back. And, of course, we had a lot of help. We had a fantastic board of directors, like people who actually knew what a mortgage was, for example. Um, and we went ahead and we bought uh, this building, and it is flourishing. And um, it was the first center established in the West by Westerners, and the first center that wasn't referring back to a kind of single Asian um, teacher or monastery. And so it was really a big pioneering effort. We didn't know what we were doing at all. And we discussed everything. It's quite interesting. The, the building has the word metta, M-E-T-T-A, meaning loving kindness, up on the top of it. And what it said when we moved in was Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, because it was a Catholic novitiate. That's who we bought it from, Catholic Church. And it said Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament on top, and we got someone to get up in a very tall ladder on a very cold day, and we said, can you rearrange these letters to say something about us, about our values, about how we want to present in the world? And they got up on that ladder, and they came up with metta, and then we had a huge debate, you know, like, why have a word up there no one understands? And that makes no sense, but the point of view that wanted it up there prevailed, and I was very happy because that's my point of view. And I just like it. You know, I like that someone will call for directions and whoever answers the phone will say it's a large brick building with white pillars and has this word up above, metta. And then they'll say, what does that mean? We'll say that means love or that means loving kindness. So it's a, a wonderful message. It's, it's really a, it's an intensive retreat center. We have intensive silent retreats that some are two days, some are three days, some are seven days. One is three months long. Um, it's really a fantastic immersion experience. Beautiful. Well, you are pioneers and masters, and um, 
many of us owe a debt of gratitude to, for you for that sacrifice. And we just appreciate you being there. It's it's really incredible. So if we're going to have a lot of your fans tuning into this show. So if they want to help you celebrate, is that possible? Uh, I think so. You know, they can help us online. They can, they can really, uh, you know, join out. They do join in and, you know, look at all the photos and all the everything that's, yeah. that's happening. It would be fantastic to feel everybody's energy. Excellent. Well, hopefully we can just do a little social media campaign and really surround you and lift you up in love and appreciation for 40 years. That is incredible. And like you said, you came into it without even understanding a mortgage. So Yeah, true. I love that. I love that story because it just is it was this walk of faith for all of you and and look at you now. So, thank you for that. Sharon, we just have a few minutes left in the show and I'm just wondering if you have any last inspiration that you want to share with our listeners. Any last messages, anything that's moving in you right now that you want to allow the emergence to come forward? Well, I, I, you know, I just think we're actually capable of so much more than we usually imagine we are, and uh, whatever form it takes to to actually uh, set out on a path um, to make those possibilities real, because that's the hard part. You know, it's one thing to admire it in someone else, or or think, oh, next year I'll start. You know, when I have an easier life or less stress, but to actually say, okay, I'm going to see what's what's possible for me in this current circumstance, I think, is, is the way traditions actually get upheld and, and preserved. Mm. Thank you for that. Yes. So I want to remind our listeners that you can find Sharon's work. There's lots of content. Sharon, you're a master at this. I really appreciate your website and your Facebook page. Both of them are really exquisite, a, a great use of technology. So on the website, SharonSalzberg.com, and that's S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G.com, there are great podcasts, um, well worth listening and finding a topic that you enjoy. And Sharon writes for so many different outlets. There's so much content available if you want to dig in. She teaches. There's lots of classes. Go online, learn about that. And then on your Facebook page under Sharon Salzberg, um, beautiful daily quotes, beautiful images, just a little dose of inspiration several times a day. I, I can't speak to it enough. So again, Find Sharon at SharonSalzberg.com and find her on Facebook under the same name. So, Sharon, this has been a delight. I so appreciate you joining us today and really giving us some practical small pieces that make all of this make more sense to us. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Mm, my delight. And, and again, if you haven't heard of Sharon, which is next to impossible, there's all kinds of beautiful amazing books out there and and yeah you'll get lost in it and you'll be just a, a fan like I am so thank you listeners for tuning in again this week we have another amazing guest for you next week again you can find out more on the drjulieshow.com and stop by our Facebook page the Dr. Julie Show is 
here for you and we want to hear more from you. So leave us a message. So remember, together we're creating connections for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.